Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on international business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, or maybe you're driving, or maybe you're jogging, or mowing the lawn when you're listening to this podcast. In any case, a warm welcome to you, of course. Culture Matters Podcast, we are on episode number 23, and today our guest is Stephen Frost. Stephen Frost is Head of Diversity and Inclusion for KPMG UK. He served as Head of Diversity and Inclusion for the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games from 2007 till 2012. He was educated as a Hertford College Scholar at Oxford University and a Fulbright Scholar at Harvard University. He also teaches inclusive leadership at Harvard Business School and an extended class at Sciences Po in Paris. He advises several organizations and governments worldwide and is an author of the book The Inclusion Imperative. We'll talk about um, a lot of stuff when it comes to cultural differences, of course, and that's what you're used to, to this, uh, in this Culture Matters podcast. But one that is really inter- interesting, and that is the, um, the, the quote that Stephen makes pretty early in the, in the interview. He says, diversity is reality and inclusion is a choice. If you want to know, uh, know more about what he means, be sure to check out the interview. And we'll get right to the interview right now. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good afternoon, Stephen. How are you? Very well. Good afternoon, Chris. What's going on today with you? Or let me just sort of elaborate a little bit more on this question. Question. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who's Stephen Frost? Where do you come from? Where are you now? And what is your cultural frame of reference? Crikey. That's a lot. Um, it is, yes. Um so, uh, Stephen Frost, I am right now in London. Uh-huh. Um, I'm uh, at home, working from home today. I'm looking at the, uh, the news that we speak in Paris, which is very uh, worrying. Um, but I am uh, a head of diversity inclusion for KPMG. Mm-hmm. I also teach at Harvard and Sciences Po in Paris. Um, I have written a book called The Inclusion Imperative. My big thing is inclusive leadership. Um, and really, uh, you know, understanding difference, including difference for the benefit of all of us. Um, so I'm in London. That's kind of what I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, delighted to talk to you this afternoon. Great. Fantastic. And just to make sure if you're listening to this uh, to this podcast, uh, which will air somewhat later in uh, in January or you're listening around January or after that, we're talking about the events that actually took place early uh, 2015, um, 9th of January and the 7th of January in Paris with some um, some uh, horrible shootouts going on there, right? Correct, yeah. Okay, so we've got that framed as well. Your Head of Diversity and Inclusion at KPMG. Uh, you said a visiting fellow at Harvard University. What do each of these positions do? What is what is a Head of Diversity of Inclusion? And how do, you, how do you get that position? I mean, there are not many companies that have a position like that. And what does it entail? 
Well, there are quite a few that do actually, Chris, and a growing number that do. That's the good. reason is that um, diversity is reality, but inclusion is a choice. And we live in an increasingly diverse world where actually if you look at the challenges that businesses face, it is getting more diverse by the day. Mm-hmm. And the question is really, do you deal with that or ignore it? Mm-hmm. And all the evidence suggests that companies that ignore it go bust. And those that actually can handle it it, or profit from it actually succeed. So what it means is that um, I did the diversity inclusion work for the London Olympics and Paralympics Mm -hmm. and now for KPMG. And we're looking at basically inculcating diversity in our recruitment, in our people, in HR, in our supply chain, our procurement and in our customer service delivery so that we can better interact with diverse people and get better marginal returns from them, whether it's as an employee, a supplier or a customer or client. You, you you say that more more and more companies are actually doing this uh, in terms of uh, um, how do you say getting somebody who is a, a head a head of diversity and inclusion like yourself. It's still the minority, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, there's really three reasons why people might do this, right? Mm-hmm. Why companies, business might do this, which you're right is still not yet. Um, I think common. Uh, a best practice amongst all businesses worldwide. Uh, it's definitely still restricted to kind of the FTSE 100 and large companies in the UK or the Fortune 500 in the States or global multinationals and so forth. Um, but really, the, the first reason a lot of companies do it, particularly in North America, is for compliance reasons. Mm. They don't want to be caught out, you know, for lit- litigation in terms of mistreating or discriminating against any groups inadvertently. And that's the motivator uh, then. Well, it is for many for many organisations, yeah, particularly in North America, and you know, there's 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 a time and place for compliance, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a second reason why companies do this, and that's more really from a marketing or kind of consumer connection point of view, and that's more prevalent in Europe or with multinationals, mm-hmm. and that's really you know kind of marketing, stakeholder relationships, and so forth, and connecting with very different audiences and very diverse customer bases, and again, like compliance, the marketing's got a role, right? So those two reasons are kind of okay; they're fair enough. But the real reason, the third reason why I do this work and why I think KPMG does this work and why we talk about it at Harvard and Sciences Po and the London Olympics and Paralympics did this work is because we, we can really add value genuinely to the business at each point the decisions are made. So if you look at really like how we uh, recruit, hire, on board, promote people, right? You yeah. can't just treat all people as one in a cookie-cutter process approach because you don't get the marginal benefits of different people then. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at our supply chain, you want to diversify your supply chain, have new innovative ideas coming from new companies in different places. Or if you look at your customer supply base, generally speaking, our customers are more diverse than our producers. Yeah. And so we want to try and better reflect that in, in the goods and services we provide and how we interact with them. So what we're trying to do and the reason why we really do this is really to add value in our people, in our HR systems and get better talent, to add value in our supply chain and get more innovative and new good uh, fresh goods and services and to look at kind of a better connection with customers mm-hmm. that actually we can have a really more personal customer experience which basically generates better value for the company and gives the client a better, better service. You mentioned something really nice which is diversity is reality and inclusion is a choice there. Um, it, are you think that do you think that actually we are growing close together as cultures, or are we more diverging? Depends on what scale we look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in one level, globally, we're converging, right? So, in one level, you have uh, you know a global business community that you know fly everywhere, have meetings. There's business norms. English is a business language. Yeah. French is a diplomatic language, and so forth. So, in one sense, we're converging. 
But if you look at a lower scale, so perhaps the national scale or even micro scales, we're very much diversifying. So if you look at, for example, the UK labour market, Mm -hmm. the majority of new entrants now into the UK labour market are quote-unquote minorities, Mm -hmm. right? They're not the old white British. And so you've got to have different approaches. And also the people in charge still tend to be Gen X or baby boomers, whereas the new people coming in are millennials and the digital natives. Mm -hmm. So again, you've got to have a different approach and different strategy. So I think overall what we're seeing is divergence but convergence at a kind of a global scale and increasing divergence at a more local scale. Okay, makes makes good sense. And then you mentioned like the United States is 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 uh, imp- uh, um, implicating this, uh, applying this, I should say, in terms of uh, it must be, it looks good. It's um, uh, it's it's avoiding litigation and stuff like that, compliance. And in Europe, it has to do more with the marketing uh, side of that. Are you telling us that we're all just window dressing, or, or are a lot of organizations just paying um, lip service to this whole thing? I think a lot are. In my book, The Inclusion Imperative, why I was compelled to write this is because I still think if you look at these three paradigms that I wrote in the book, Mm -hmm. uh, the diversity 101 compliance approach that's prevalent in North America, the diversity 2.0 marketing approach that's prevalent in Europe. um, I I think window dressing is in one sense too far because there are legitimate reasons why you want to comply or market, right? Sure. But uh, but you're right in the sense that I still think we're decorating the tree. I still think companies feel they've got to take a hit and do diversity, quote unquote, because it's the right thing to do and we just should do it. And it's a net cost line item on the books. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's fundamentally flawed. Why why do companies do this? Because, I mean, you're very um, able to paint a picture that it's actually added value if you do pay attention to cultural differences or diversity and inclusion, etc. Why do companies still brush over so fast when it comes to cultural differences? Because they're run by human beings. And human beings like to hang out with people like themselves. Because it's more comfortable, they can have better relationships, they can share a similar sense of humor, a similar similar kind of glass of wine or beer in the bar. Mm-hmm. Basically, because we can connect with people like us. And even though some of the people that run these companies are incredibly smart, interesting, talented people, they're human. And they want to connect with people more like them rather than people who are very different from them. Because that's a natural, you know, we all have implicit bias. We're all deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. And this is just a natural human tendency. So in a sense, what I'm arguing, you and I can agree about from a logical perspective, but from an emotional, raw human perspective, we have to be almost counterintuitive in reaching out to different cultures or including differences, because it's in our own interest to do that, even though we don't necessarily want to do it. Okay. Uh, it is, is, is there a particular way or approach that you use to convince people about your point? Yeah, I mean, as I say, for me, if you look at the first two points I talked about, 101 or 2.0, compliance and marketing in the book, the third one that I really made you on that we did before was what I call real inclusion, inclusive leadership. Mm -hmm. So how I would go about trying to persuade a a business colleague of the value of this approach is to say, well, look, you know, diversity is a reality, inclusion is a choice. We know that difference comes, value comes from difference. If we look, for example, at how, well, let's look at two business examples. Yeah. One would be, let's look at kind of um, financial portfolios, right? Mm -hmm. And particularly after 2008, we understand the importance of diverse portfolios to mitigate risk. Absolutely. So any financial advisor is going to say, Chris, don't put all your, you know, your eggs in that basket. Don't buy all your, you want to spread your bets, have a diverse portfolio to mitigate your risk and get better returns overall. 
And it's funny that we do that with our financial products, but we don't apply that principle to our people. And, and so actually what we need to do is have a more diverse portfolio of people because the, the output of the sum of those parts is greater than the sum of those parts. Well, does that mean that as a British company, you would hire um, a certain amount, a number of Indians, a number of Chinese, a number of French, a number of Americans? Is that what you're talking about? Quotas? It, it means that as a British company or any company that wants to interact globally or wants to kind of benefit from diversity, you would actively seek cognitive diversity, cultural diversity, difference in background experience, as opposed to people like you. Mm -hmm. In other words, you would place inherent value on diversity in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. There's a book by Scott Page called The Difference, and he produced this diversity prediction theorem where he showed that actually the value of diversity is more than some of its parts, and in some cases can actually be more than IQ alone in producing better outputs. Mm -hmm. So in other words, more diverse teams mitigate risk, lower the average risk in decision making, and generally produce better outcomes. And he actually gives you numbers with that, like hard cash? Yeah. And if you look, for example, the Credit Suisse report on the correlation between female inclusion on boards and financial performance of those companies, we can't prove causation, mm -hmm. um, but we can prove correlation. So there's now a pretty robust case to show the correlation between diversity around the table and financial performance and productivity and outputs coming out from that table. Mm. Okay. okay. Makes um, makes good sense. You you do something um, or, or one one step back actually. How does KPMG pay attention to this? How do you how as a, as an enormous organization as KPMG is? How do you make this a reality rather than than something on paper or a theory? Sure. So again, if you look at this third approach, this real inclusion approach that we're taking to the leadership, it means that really we've got to get folks to understand what we're talking about. So let's have some honest conversations. And at KPMG, we focus very much on honest conversations. So let's not just say, oh, we need to hire some of X, Y, or Z, but let's really talk about the value that diversity brings. And of course, the, the, the dangers of diversity too. Um, but overall, like the benefits of diversity. So understand The second thing we do need to do is, is to lead. So this is not my job or Chris's job or anyone. This is all of our jobs, per taking personal responsibility for building diverse teams. So we measure the diversity of teams, we measure the diversity of hiring, and we measure kind of the diversity that exists, benchmarking different parts of the firm. And, and then thirdly, it's about delivery. So, you know, have we increased the proportion of women on our, on our partnership? We know at the moment that we have 19% women uh, as partners globally, but in the UK it's only 15%, up from 14%, whereas China it's nearer 30%. So what can we learn from each other and how can we benchmark to have better progress? So, so how does this, we make it a reality? I think we do it in our HR practices and our recruitment, promotion and retention of diverse talent. Mm -hmm. I think we do it in our supply chain and our work in procurement. And I think we do it in our interactions with clients. When we're pitching for business or working with clients, I think this is an issue which is definitely on the agenda of boards. Mm -hmm. We talk about it. We've got some great insights that we share with clients. And I think it's a generally mutual benefit to both client and company. Fully agree, absolutely. Is there like a, like a personal story that you could share where you, as Stephen Frost, have experienced um, the benefits of, of this inclusion approach? Sure. I mean, if you look at, for example, I work at the uh, London Olympics and Paralympics. Yeah. I, mean, I, was, I was there for five and a half years. And uh, if you look, for example, at uh, how we produce the torch relay or the opening ceremony, uh -huh. if you'd had just the usual suspects there without challenge, without rigor, without, you know, creative disagreement just to, just, to, just to make sure who would the, who are the usual subjects uh, suspects uh, with something like that 
Well, I mean, traditionally, the way that Olympics and Paralympics were done is you'd have the people who did one game kind of move to the next. Literally, it was like a a global traveling circus from one city to the next. Mm -hmm. Uh, London was the first games to really put diverse inclusion at the heart of the uh, organizing committee. and that meant that basically we had more diversity around the table, more cognitive diversity, more challenge. Um, and that resulted in more tension, more conflicts and more disagreement about the way forward, less groupthink. But it also, I think, resulted in much better output. So in, in, in the book, I devoted two chapters to the torch relay and the ceremonies and how actually that kind of conflict, which is almost semi-engineered, produced better outcomes. So if you look, for example, at the opening ceremony, and how it includes the suffragette story of women's rights in the opening piece, uh, the national anthem sung by a mixed choir of deaf and disabled kids, uh, whether you look at kind of the, um, the way we try to infuse diverse inclusion throughout the ceremony, that came through very different voices around the table, challenging uh, how we did it. And I think that produced a better result. Or if you look at the torch relay, where you know you could have just done the torch relay around the country um, with sports people carrying the torch, but we had a 101-year-old woman, we had a, a young kid, we had disabled people, non-disabled people. We mixed the Paralympics and the Olympics together for the first time mm-hmm. under the same organising committee. And we went to 95% of the population you know, with the torch. So I, th- I think there's ways that it, it, it was done, uh, and I think there's ways it manifested itself, which at the end of the day, Chris, like we said, created better games, created better business, created better better output, mm-hmm. um, which is above and beyond the kind of tokenistic dressing the tree ideas that some people may still have around diversity. Okay, that's a nice in, uh, illustration of that uh, of that whole story. Um, you are also a, um, a visiting fellow at Harvard University. That's, that's uh, across the pond, right? Sure. So that's in Cambridge in Massachusetts. What yeah. do you do there? So um, when the Olympics uh, finished in 2012, a couple of my former professors said I should go back and write up a case study, write up the the story of London 2012 from a diversity inclusion perspective, because it was seen as a a really interesting uh, way to do diversity in a company, very different. And so I did, and I went back and I was a fellow with the Women in Public Policy Program, uh, working with Iris Bonnet and a few colleagues at the Kennedy School and the Business School. And um, I wrote a book called uh, The Inclusion Imperative, And that was based on the work that we did in in HR, in procurement, in in client service at the Games. And um, that that book has been received quite well. And now I teach um, a couple of classes. Uh, I teach inclusive leadership and and how actually we we need to be counterintuitive in our dealing of diversity to get value out of it and to generally lead on this uh, to to benefit businesses. And I also give a case study um, about London 2012. I do that in Paris as well with Sciences Po. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I teach, uh, I do a bit of research, I, um, I, I write, and, um, and it's really interesting being at KPMG uh, in the real business world, but also still teaching a little bit um, in academia. It's a really nice blend, I think, which, which benefits, well, me, but also I think benefits the firm and, and uh, Harvard. I'm very keen to, to bridge divides between academia and business. Right, I think that's really necessary to make it pra- more practical. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right because, you know, I love being a, a residential fellow there after the games. It, it was wonderful, but it does feel a very privileged and somewhat removed existence in the business world. And I think bridging that divide is so important um, for, for everyone's benefit. So, yeah. As a, uh, a, a fellow at, the, uh, at Harvard University, what, what's your main audience there? So uh, the MBAs, uh, the MBA students who do, particularly those who do the joint program with the uh, uh, the MBA program and the Kennedy School of Public Policy program, mm-hmm. but also fellow um, researchers and academics and policymakers. And in France, 
Uh, the MPA students, so those that are doing Master Public Administration, and again, a couple of academic colleagues and some businesses that I've worked with there. So I've done some interesting work in, in France with L'Oréal and AXA and others there that, that you know, are really starting to address issues of diversity inclusion within their own companies and their own markets. Okay, so occasionally you're an Englishman in not in New York but in uh, close to Boston there, and uh, and then the other time you're in in Paris. Do you see a cultural difference between as a Brit teaching for American or as an American audience or a French audience, or right. in the US or in France? Yeah, very much. So. I mean, again, I've got to like caveat this by saying we can only comment on our own data sample, right? So, yeah. but within what I've experienced, very much so. There's some similarities, you know, very confident, able students with interesting perspectives on the world that probably teach me far more than I teach them. But um, I think in terms of cultural differences, I think in the States, there's much more kind of a confidence to uh, challenge the professor to have a much more two-way conversation, for it to be a genuinely live learning experience where everyone's speaking and taking part. I think whereas in France, it's more kind of a little bit more one-directional, um, whether the you know professor is actually delivering more content and the students more in receive mode. But that, that's changing, I think, particularly with these international schools like Sciences Po and, and Harvard. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're they're being educated in a way uh, which is maybe more the Anglo-Saxon way. Is that is that what you feel? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting point, but I think actually, if I look at my experience of Oxford in the UK and uh, Harvard in the States, they're, they're both very different, and yet suppo both supposedly Anglo-Saxon. So I, th I think really uh, in in the States, it's much more the, um, the the teaching being very interactive and being very two-way, uh, which is a really energetic kind of learning environment. Whereas I think in Europe, um, still uh, uh, a bit more kind of top down. But it, but as I say, it's still very, very much changing. And um, certainly the, the work I do in the UK and in Europe is very much interactive. And that's the best way that we all learn. I, yeah, I was going to ask, do you, do you change your, your way of approach when you're in the, in, the, in the US versus in France? A little bit, but I also like to be, because I think, I think it's culturally sensitive to do that to a degree, because you want to be led by your audience and be culturally sensitive to where you find yourself. Yeah. But at the same time, I think if you as a professional have got something to offer, then you need to offer it. And, um, and that can be, you know, so uh, the, same, the same material that I teach in both um, situations. Uh -huh. And if you look, for example, at uh, those three countries, the US, France and the UK, which have many similarities, when it comes to diversity inclusion, they have very, very big differences. I mean, if you look at the UK, diversity inclusion is uh, now quite normal in a lot of companies. And as I said, you know, there's some companies like KPMG that I think are really leading in this area. Whereas in the States, I think it's much more from a compliance perspective. And in France, you're not even allowed to measure uh, data. So it's hard to say how many uh, folks from a black background or disabled people that you actually have in your company because it's, it's hard to actually measure it. Because so, it's not being measured. Right. I mean, well, yeah, to, to a degree, that's true. Yeah. Okay. It just keeps mind-boggling me time and again, and I keep coming back to maybe the the, the earlier bit of this uh, of this conversation is is how do you convince an organization to really pay attention to these these cultural differences and this diversity and inclusion? I mean, there's many reasons, right? No, but I mean, how do you, how do you do it? I mean, it's. We are we are the converted, if you want. I mean, it's uh, we we see the value of of mm. paying attention to cultural differences. Mm. But an organization, many organizations, you say yourself, it's it is window dressing to some extent. And how do you convince them that this actually makes sense? Because you very um, uh, almost bluntly and black and white stated, companies that do are surviving. Companies that don't will ultimately die. Well, let's look at the evidence. I mean, let's look at technology, right? Let's look at Ken Erickson. 
right? Ericsson, you know, brilliant technology, weren't so much into design. Let's look at Nokia, you know, really into design, but didn't say kind of the apps and the way that was going. Mm -hmm. Then Apple comes along, that's brilliant at technology and design, and wipes the floor with both of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's an example of being receptive to different ideas, different diversity of thought and so forth, and how companies can, can you know, succeed or fail. Um, if you look, you know, right now at different companies, how they're embracing diversity, you look at, for example, Unilever, a big, you know, multinational uh, uh, fast-moving consumer goods company, and they know they've got to be on this because products are changing so fast, consumer trends are moving so fast, they operate in so many different global markets. If they're not aware of this stuff, if they're not culturally intelligent, then they'll fail. They'll, they'll fail to miss opportunities, right? They'll, they'll fail to grasp opportunities. So how do you do it? I mean, for me, there's five reasons. I mean, one is basically employees. If you want to get the best talent, then you've got to have to speak to that talent. And having the old way of recruiting and the old kind of messaging and the old employee value proposition won't necessarily wash it with the millennials or with kind of minorities coming to the, uh, the labor market now. Secondly, I think it's for um, your existing uh, uh, people. We know that people perform better when they can be themselves. And if you don't allow people to bring their whole self to work, then they're not going to be efficient working for you. Right? How you get that discretionary effort is the kind of real make or break differentiator versus the competition. And if gay people can't be out or people with mental health issues can't disclose or women can't be themselves, then they're not bringing their whole selves to work. They're not going to give you their whole ability in the job. I think another reason is decision-making. So I mentioned to you the book by Scott uh, Page before. Yeah. This idea that, you know, if we um, have groupthink, then look what happens. Look at Lehman Brothers. Look at Swiss Air. Look at other examples of where we didn't challenge decision-making strongly enough. You know, we've got to have that kind of decision-making challenge. I think as well, there's a question of ethics, right? That you look at, you know, the increasing inequality in societies today – and that's why, for example, I think KPMG is rightly campaigning on the living wage and rightly talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, making sure that we, we include all uh, talent from all kinds of societies, regardless of means or background. So I think there's lots of reasons why we should do it in terms of how you actually put it into practice. For me, the big dependency is leadership. And that's why I work with top teams in various organizations to say, look, you know, perhaps the missing piece for you here is really allowing people to be themselves. And you as a leader in the organization have got to set the tone from the top to say, hey, it's okay to be yourself and to demonstrate that, you know, in real terms. And that, that I think, can make a massive difference to the productivity and performance of a company. Yeah, yeah. true. Good, good, good point. Um, I was thinking actually um about your book because you've mentioned your own book the inclusion imperative like how real what's the subtitle how real inclusion creates better businesses and builds better societies mm. uh, what is what is the main message from that book the, the main message from that book is that you know it kind of goes back to what you were saying before chris that a lot of people still kind of treat diverse inclusion as a nice to have or maybe decorating the tree but fundamentally for me it's an imperative Right? Mm -hmm. How we include or exclude difference is going to be a critical business issue of the 21st century. Right? Look around at changing markets, changing power um, dynamics between economies, you know, look at inequality, look at global trade, look at all these things. How we include or exclude difference is a critical differentiator in how we're going to succeed. So if, for example, KPMG or any other global company thinks that it can carry on as it always has done, 
then it's mistaken, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to be on the forefront of this and we've got to be looking at how we are tapping into new talent, how we're onboarding that talent, how we're learning from that talent. Because if we don't, we will fail to ride the next wave of technological breakthrough. We'll fail to, you know, kind of grasp new ideas and that'll put us behind. So for me, um, you know, the message of the book is grab diversity, um, make use of diversity. It's all about inclusive leadership because that is your kind of secret source to, you know, uh, uh, the future and competitive advantage going yeah, forward. Yeah. You've mentioned, uh, I talked about big multinationals, KPMG being one of them. Do you think the same premise holds true for smaller organizations? Because not nowadays, I mean, doing business international, pretty much every small company, I mean, one, two, three, five, ten people or something, and you can do international business. The same thing holds true for them as well? I think so. I mean, I kind of I wanted to acknowledge the limitations of this theory of this approach. Uh -huh. If if you own an antiques shop in Brussels, right, uh, your your value probably comes from not innovating and from being, you know, <laughs> from, from kind of almost selling the past, right? Absolutely. That, that, and that's what people want. People want some of that. But I think if um, you're not an antique shop in Brussels and, and you're, you're the majority of businesses, even if you're a very small five, 10 person business, you know, diversity is a, a resource for you, right? And actually having different people around the table, different challenges to your thinking can definitely benefit you. I mean, if I look at some of the businesses, small businesses that I've worked with or friends that run small businesses, it's those conversations, those business conversations with someone that will constructively disagree with you that are the most useful conversations to have. Right, because mm -hmm. they're the ones where you really learn. They're the ones where you really innovate. They're the ones where you really change your adapt strategy to kind of better capitalize on situations that you haven't necessarily fully appreciated before that. Mm -hmm. So I think the principle, with the odd exception of the antique shop, holds true pretty much regardless of size of business. But I think clearly it's more pressing, more imperative for larger businesses that stand to lose more. Okay, is it is it a skill? that you're talking about here or is it a state of mind and basically the the underlying question is can you learn this i think you can i'm an innate optimist um <laughs> and i think that um clearly we all have different skill sets some are extroverts introverts whatever it might be but i think you know Daniel Goleman wrote his emotion intelligence quite a few years ago. Uh -huh. But building on from that, whether it's emotion intelligence, whether it's you know leadership capacity, whatever, I think leadership generally is something which can be taught. And it's often through insights that we learn. For example, for anybody at any level, regardless of whether you're the receptionist or the CEO, to realize that leadership is not a noun. It's not something that, you know, uh, oh, that's Chris, he's a leader, or that's Steve, he's a leader. Leadership is something that we do. It's a verb. And therefore, you know, uh, anyone that's empowered to lead can make a difference. And um, I think that's some, just that insight can sometimes give people permission to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. So if you think about, you know, the 155,000 people at KPMG, the majority of whom are in more junior positions, if we don't empower those people to lead, then we're missing out on a massive resource. Because often it's people who are millennials, who are closer to, you know, technological changes that have probably got most to teach. If I look at KPMG in the UK, the average age of our people is 26, right? Wow. Now, if you think about that, and yet who's running the show, be it, you know, in government, in business, what, what have you, you know, we've got a thing to learn or two from 26-year-olds. Yep. You know, yep, next, week, next week, I'm going to the World Economic Forum at Davos. And there, you know, it'll be the usual suspects of 85% men and majority like, you know, 40, 50, 60-something-year-old majority white men. That's fine, but actually... 
they're not the ones, ironically, that are setting the pace these days. And they need to learn from different people in different geographies who are onto things that they're not. Okay, yeah, it makes uh, it makes good sense. I'm, I'm I'm trying to take this in and, and listen to what you uh, what you're saying. Um, we talked about business and and companies for the majority of this um, of this interview, and I have two more questions for you. Actually, three, but the last one is how to get in touch with you. Um, so the one before that, uh, the one before that is actually your as as Stephen Frost. What is your personal pain and joy when working with other cultures? Wow. Um, I think that the, over, the overriding thing has got to be joy, right? Because I think it, it behoves all of us uh, as humble uh, leaders to learn from others. And so, you know, I, I spent the new year in India. Um, I certainly learned how uh, to travel by tuk-tuk in downtown Mumbai. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, th I think learning from different cultures is is just important and, and joyous. So that's my biggest joy. My, my biggest pain, it's not really pain, but it's frustration because yeah. clearly, you know, um, The diversity isn't a universal panacea, right? And, you know, without leadership, uh, diversity can cause conflict, misunderstanding, lower morale, frustration. And that's inevitable for me, for you, for all of us, uh, unless we can step back and lead in these situations too. So if I look at the colleagues that I work with all around the world, my overwhelming um, takeaway is joy and learning. And I love hearing how they do it differently or better. Um, my only pain point would be occasional frustration which is to be expected yes that's part of the deal i guess as well yeah. the my last question is um, probably the, the most most difficult one then maybe i should have prepped you before as well oh, but can okay. you give us three tips maybe from your own personal experience three tips to become more culturally competent as an individual not as an organization per se but just as a, as a person hmm Great. Um, lots, but let me think uh, of a couple uh, yeah. to, to be more culturally competent. I think um, one has got to be listen, right? Because mm -hmm. I think I think so often we go into these situations as a professional with our body of expertise and we think that's our role. But actually, none of us have all the answers. And so listening, I think, behaves all of us to do. And also listening to the people who are often quieter. So I'm um, not just listening to loud voices, but the quieter voices. That's one. Mm -hmm. um, I think a second is uh, just uh, not being afraid to take risks. Um, I think a lot of us, and again, I'm going to perhaps unfairly pick on North Americans and British people here, but a lot of us often are too scared to put our toe in the water for fear of offending people. And I think we've got to just take the plunge. So clearly don't be crass, clearly be professional, but take a calculated risk and ask those questions, learn, you know, um, put yourself out there, make yourself vulnerable. And I think a third one is basically um, relax into it. So in other, what, in other, what does that mean? Well, so for example, when I was riding around on the rickshaw, the tuk-tuk in Mumbai, and I was kind of veering between various cars, alarming speed, you just relax into it. But what I really mean by that is um, often we think, you know, We don't have enough resources to um, to learn or to do this work. We often don't have enough time. You know what? We're never going to have enough resources and we never have enough time. But one thing that we absolutely have, an infinite supply that's free of charge and completely within our own control, is our own capacity for leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we relax into that view and listen and be afraid, don't be afraid to take risks, we can have a great cultural experience, really benefit from difference, and it's overall massively net positive experience. Great. That's a fantastic ending to this uh, to this interview. Stephen, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do this? Uh, a couple of ways, Chris. One is my um, website, frostincluded.com. They can go to Twitter, at 
Frost included. Um, so all on word, uh, or they can just email me at KPMG, stephen.frost at kpmg.co.uk. Okay. Okay. Got that noted down. Thank you very much. And I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Chris, absolute pleasure. So um, we'll talk on Twitter if, uh, if not in, in, in person shortly. Uh, at Frost included, I'll make sure I'm following you too. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Stephen, again. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Stephen Frost. You can um, reach him in a sub- several ways, of course. Make sure to check that out. You can also go to the website culturematters.com and uh, type in the search field Stephen or Frost and you'll no doubt pop up there or otherwise just go to the, the podcast tab and check out the other podcasts there as well. Thanks so much for listening. Spread the word about this podcast. Really appreciate that. I'll be back in two weeks' time with another interview. That's going to be an interesting one. It's going to be our youngest guest ever. Hope to um, meet you there. Then take care. Enjoy the rest of the day. Bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.